Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of Two Specialists. I'm Jane, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I'm too warm. It's over 20 degrees. Oh, are you crawling out of your skin? <laughs> Say yes. Yes. Funny you should mention that, Callum, because today we're talking about skin and soft tissue infections. What an excellent segue. Ah. We're really getting good at this podcasting business. Mm. <laughs> so, skin soft tissue infections, Jim. Also called acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections by no one that I've ever met. I've, I've heard people say A-B-S-S-S-I. Well, I hate those people. Only once, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Skin and soft tissue uh, uh, infection, I think, really captures it quite well. It's it's a really great catch-all term, and you don't have to get any just semantics about is it cellulitis or is it erysipelas. Um, Yeah. That having been said, we are going to talk about that in detail just now. We're going to talk about Uh, it now because it could potentially be something that in an exam situation, people say... The patient has erysipelas. What's the most likely organism? And you'd be mm. like, well, um, but I think in reality, people should call it skin soft tissue infection, SSTI. Um, and what people actually call them is cellulitis, if you're non-specialist. Most people just say it's cellulitis, even when it's not really technically cellulitis. To be honest, um, if you're going to treat them all exactly the same, spending your time trying to tail between uh, them has limited value, uh, let's say. Yeah, the treatment and management is pretty much the same. The yeah. important distinction as with any clinical infection is, is it a severe infection or is it a non-severe? And that's yeah, totally. pretty much as far as it goes. So we've previously been doing episodes of the podcast looking at different groups of organisms. Uh, and now we're looking at uh, a more clinical perspective. And we decided to go for skin soft tissue infection because the causative organisms for this infection are organisms that we've been talking about. Yeah, the causative organisms are predominantly uh, Staph aureus and the beta hemolytic strep, particularly group A and group C and G. Um, so hopefully this podcast episode will be a little shorter than normal. Hmm. Uh, this is Jane coming in on the edit here. Uh, this was not a quick podcast, and so we've split it into two parts. More on that later. Okay, so that's why we're, we've chosen this topic um, out of the many, many topics that we can talk about. So we're, we'll hopefully try and do that, that pattern again, which is we'll talk a bit about organisms detail, and then we'll move on to the clinical uh, systems that they do. You could do it the other way around, but um, I think for structured learning, this sometimes makes it a bit easier to understand. Um, mm. So in terms of the outline of the podcast, what we're going to talk about. So first, we're going to just talk about some definitions of different terms that you would come across in skin and soft tissue infections. Next, we'll move on to what risk factors patients can have to develop these problems. Next, we'll just talk briefly around the causative organisms, but we won't go into detail because we've covered those previously. Next, we'll move into the symptoms and signs that these sort of infections can present with. Then talk about diagnostics, uh, following that severity assessment and finally talk briefly about how you treat skin soft tissue infections 
So firstly, definitions. So I guess definitions, so a skin and soft tissue infection or acute bacterial skin and skin structure infection is a broad catch-all term for various different skin and skin structure infections which can affect different layers of the the skin as a as a whole entity as an as an organ if you will yeah and uh the the loyal listener may be uh, wondering why skin and soft tissue infection what's what do you mean by soft tissue what they mean is not bone and not joint uh, so osteomyelitis and septic arthritis they are uh, separate to all this uh, although they can both complicate be complications of mm. uh, skin soft tissue infection but that's why that's put in there that's why you don't say just skin infection uh yeah um so some definitions uh, so if we think about the the skin layers which people will cover in medical school and um i think it's fairly good general knowledge if you go from the most superficial to the more deep layers uh, so you start with the epidermis and then you've got the dermis and then you've got a superficial layer of fascia uh, which is a sort of strong connective tissue film almost that stops things getting in or out. Uh, underneath I've got the subcutaneous tissue. Under that is another layer of fascia called the deep fascia. Uh, and underneath that is muscles and then bone, etc. Um, and the infections of the skin and soft tissue infection group. So starting at the very top in the epidermis, first we've got impetigo. Uh, following this, we've got in the upper dermis erysipelas, going a bit deeper into the epidermis dermis layer you've got cellulitis and then uh, if we go deeper down if you've got an infection that's progressed uh, you can get infection in the lymphatic system it's called lymphangitis if it causes in the uh, lymph nodes and lymph vessels yeah and and in addition to that you've got infections involving uh, hair follicles so hair follicles Kind of go from the surface of the uh, of the skin through the epidermis and down to the uh, to the dermis, and uh, an infected hair follicle on its own, you would call that uh, folliculitis. Uh, a uh, infected hair follicle with uh, infection th- throughout the length of the uh, follicle with some epidermal inflammation, you would call that a boil. Uh, if there's if there's pus there, uh, and then if you've got a a collection of boils, possibly with communications between them, uh, then uh, you would call that a carbuncle, uh, a collection of boils with fistulation between them. Um, so they're uh, uh, more severe than, than uh, boils on their own. So we've gone through the layers there. When we get to the symptoms and signs, uh, we'll, we'll talk about these in layers. Um, there's a bit of clinical judgment and sometimes if you uh, see a lot of skin and soft tissue infections you can maybe differentiate between as more specifics and it might give you a better idea about what the causative organism and that might guide your treatment mm. um, might yeah I mean it might usually it doesn't to be honest um, you have to cover for the big guns which are staph and strep and that's just about every organism that's um, oh, you're, that's you're jumping ahead there to causative organisms. We've done yeah, that. True enough. enough. Sorry. Uh, no. So risk to. factors uh, for skin soft tissue infection. Yeah. So you can divide these sort of into breakdowns of the skin barrier, immunosuppression, and reasons white blood cells would have difficulty controlling an infection or an invading organism. So if you've got barrier breakdown, 
of the skin. So disorders of the skin would be the obvious first thing to think of. So eczema, previous scars, an incision trauma to the skin layers. Uh, injecting drug use, obviously, is a, is a risk factor for getting infections, uh, particularly if you've got somebody who's reusing needles and things like that. Then you've got people who've previously had cellulitis. That's a risk factor for getting it again in the same site. And then if somebody has a pre-existing neuropathy, then they won't be protecting their skin as much, and so they'll be more prone to uh, injuring that site. Yeah, interesting thing to think about. I always wondered why, if you're you know injecting uh, drugs and you reuse your needles, why does that mean that you get more infections? There's probably a couple of reasons. One, the needle is no longer sterile, so you're not using a clean needle. Another thing to think about is that even you know when you use a needle once, it blunts it slightly, and so if you're using mm. a non-sharp needle, then you'll cause more trauma and increase the risk of inoculation of um, of bringing in bacteria from the skin even if the needle isn't that dirty. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's pictures you can get of uh, needles under an electron microscope and the there's, you know, a needle that looks basically pristine. It just looks like a normal needle up close. And then there's one that's been used uh, and it looks kind of all raggedy and it, it's a bit like your, um, your razor blades being blunted uh, over time and you have to change them at the end of the month, um, except it's, you know, uh, possibly been not ideally cleaned, uh, shall we say, if you're reusing them. Some people boil them in the water. Some people stick them in their mouths, thinking mm. that saliva is a, is a yeah, sterilizing yeah. agent. That's very common people one. coming in with strange oral organisms in the infection, and you're like, you've been licking your needles. You know, it is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, L- lots of streptomitis <laughs> and oralis yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but then let's, uh, moving on to other risk factors. So there's immunosuppression. And so that can be their own immunosuppressive medication. And that will be, you know, with the biologics really taking off, that will be more and more of a factor, particularly if we start uh, going to, to um, second order signaling uh, blockers. Diabetes. So diabetes not only makes the tissue more receptive to organism colonization because the tissue is sugarier, if you have poor diabetic control, but diabetes in itself is, is kind of a mildly immunosuppressive condition. Macrophages and T cells don't function as well in, in high sugar environments and this kind of chronic low level inflammation that is produced. And renal and liver disease as well, and alcoholism, all of these things are kind of causes of reduced immunocompetency, let's say. And this is on top of, you know, transplant patients, people with HIV and all that, yeah. uh, all that kind it's of stuff. It's not an exhaustive list. There's a, there's a lot of reasons for your immune system not to no. work. Mm-hmm. Can I just um, ask yeah, you totally. there, so you said second order signaling and immune suppression. Can you just explain um, for those who might not know what that means? Uh, yeah, sure. So yeah, uh, biologics uh, started off just by blocking stuff that was sitting on the surface uh, of a cell. So say rituximab is used for lymphoma uh, chemotherapy. Well, that's a CD20 blocker and CD20 is a, a marker that sits on the surface of, um, of B cells and, and plasma cells. And so that's why it's useful in uh, diffuse large B cell lymphoma, uh, for example. As time has gone on, we've now got small molecule in- inhibitors and monoclonal antibodies that can target second order signaling messengers uh, within that are operating within the cell. So like the signaling cascade goes from like the cell surface to a, a first messenger to a second messenger to sometimes a third or a fourth. And then at some point they sort of start to affect cellular behavior. 
One such example could be Janus kinase blockers or JAK12 blockers. Important thing to to think about when you're you're thinking about these eight, these new agents, which are targeting these intracellular messengers, is that the deeper down you go, the more that messenger isn't receiving signals from lots of different systems, and so the effects, the second order effects of, of blocking that, can be more widespread uh, than if you were just say blocking CD20 with rituximab or you know TNF alpha. Uh, with the tanner sepsi or well, that's, that was a very good explanation uh, yeah. thank you Jim. uh so anyway and then the last uh, series of risk factors is it's kind of local local reasons that a white blood cell might have problems getting in and doing its job or getting out and alerting the rest of the immune system so venous insufficiency obesity oedema uh, things like that it's not very common but kind of blockages of the lymph tract like lymphedema mm-hmm. Um, or if people have lymphatic filariasis, for some reason your lymph system is damaged in that limb, it's difficult for the white blood cells to get in and get out, and all that can contribute to you know recurrent. I suppose one of the, the, the other risk factors that I've not mentioned here is something called hydratinitis superativa. Hydratinitis is um, excessive sweating, and superativa kind of means uh, a propensity to, to separate to kind of form pus. And this is a a condition that some people suffer from where they sweat excessively that produces an excellent environment to be colonized by some very nasty organisms that will then cause recurrent skin and soft tissue infections typically concentrated around the the groin and the armpits uh, but sometimes elsewhere in the body as well and i guess we look for risk factors that we can modify when we see patients but we'll come on to that in the in a management treatment section at the end yeah sure so talk about bugs. The bacterial, because um, it's really bacteria that we're going to be talking about, uh, bacterial pathogens mm. that cause the problem. The number one and number two are, are staph and strep. And depending on the type of infection, um, sometimes staph predominates and sometimes strep uh, predominates. So uh, more superficially, like with your, um, with your erysipelas, it's very commonly caused by group A strep and, and other streptococci. Uh, whereas with uh, cellulitis and with and with impetigo, Staph aureus is the predominant organism, and in particular in infections of hair follicles, it tends to be Staph aureus and the, and the coagulase negative staphs that are uh, that are causing that. I don't really think that if you if I see a case of erysipelasy, I would have enough confidence to say uh, you don't need any staph cover. Uh, have some penicillin, uh, but I know that there are other parts of the world where and other, you know, physicians working in the UK that would say that. Uh, and we'd argue that you should go as narrow spectrum as quickly as you can. You know, we, th- there's uh, some conjecture to be had about what the exact organisms are. Uh, and there's probably a bit of bias in literature in terms of what samples actually get taken. So if you some, see someone with a cellulitis and it's, you know, deeper down in the sort of lower layers of the, the skin, um, if you take a superficial skin swab, you're not going to, you, you might grow staph aureus or strep, which are on the skin, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a causative organism. You need to do a tissue biopsy, which you're not going yeah. to do because it's a fairly easily treatable organism uh, tr- infection. Yeah, and in fact, I, I read a paper in preparation for this uh, show. So you, you can do kind of almost like a fine needle aspirate of infected tissue, but A, it's painful for patients. 
B, its yield is about 20%. And C, it's not 100% convincing that what you're aspirating is actually the cause of organism. Because you'll be aspirating your skin commensals as well. Like they don't just live on the surface. They're sort of in the epidermis and the upper dermis too. Hmm. So, yeah, it's that we've got, you know, percentages in our head of what the cause of organisms are, but that will be skewed to what can be cultured and in particular what makes it into the blood. And also what is, Um, you know, if you see an inpatient and there's a leg that's red, people don't, won't be inclined to swap that because you're not getting at the part, but you've got say a chronic wound, you've got, you know, venous insufficiency, you've got venous ulcer and there's pus on it. Mm, People love to send a swab, even when actually there's not signs of a soft tissue infection (laughs) around it. They're like, Oh, pus swab. And actually often you'll just grow colonizing organisms. Um, Or you might grow staph aureus and is that actually pathogenic or not? So yeah, we're talking about the organisms. I think we've talked about staph aureus and beta hemolytic strep group A, group C, group G. Um, those are the most important ones. Um, any other organisms we should talk about, Jim? Yeah, so the, the, like staph and strep will, will staph aureus and strep will, will give you about 85% of all the, uh, of your skin and soft tissue infections. And so the other 15% are kind of small fry, but there are, there are a few others. So occasionally strep pneumo uh, can cause a skin infection. Uh, Haemophilus influenza, uh, normally a respiratory organism, uh, but it can uh, do it. And then there are gram negatives, uh, which can cause it. So in particular, pseudomonas. This is more common in hospitalized patients, mm. I have to say, and people that have got a pre-existing reason, like they've got um, you know, skin, chronic skin yeah, ulceration or something like that. Um, or they're immunocompromised, yeah. Um, but pseudomonas can do it. Other gram negatives can do it. I mean, this is the reason that we include... Uh, gram-negative cover in our sort of um, uh, severe in our necrotizing fasciitis uh, uh, guidance. Clostridium species can do as well, and these these infections are slightly more likely, or these uh, infections with gram-negative is slightly more likely if um, the infection is sort of near the groin. Uh, so think think IVDUs um, injecting into the groin. Anaerobes can do it, but almost always they're hitching a ride alongside uh, Staphylococcus aureus. Uh, And then there are a couple of niche cases, animal bites. You have to think about the kind of organisms which which live in in that animal's mouth. So we've talked before about Staphylococcus intermedius, which I think of as doggy Staph aureus. And they are phylogenetically, I think, quite similar to each other. Capnocytophaga canemorsis, a gram-negative organism that's found in canine mouths. And then uh, lastly is is Pasturella multocida, uh, which is found in the mouths of of carnivores, predominantly dogs and cats. I think Pasturella is very commonly isolated from cat bites, uh, sometimes dog bites. Mm. Capnocytophagia is a rare, unusual pathogen, but you is worth being aware of because not only does it cause a skin soft tissue infection, but it can cause a bacteremia and also lead to meningitis. Um, so it's worth thinking about as a, an unusual cause. Mm. It's one of these things where in infectious diseases, you take quite a comprehensive history and often we'll be asking about travel or animal bites as part of your routine history. Most people won't ask about those things. And uh, in the rare case where it is important, 
uh, sometimes that's our role to come along and ask these weird questions. Like, oh, you were bitten by your dog last week and now you've got skin soft tissue infection. You know, uh, or maybe think about it in that context, but they might not think about it in the context of meningitis, for example. Um, one thing to pick up on was, I think you said IVDU, and just to clarify, that's a, uh, it stands for intravenous drug user. Um, I think we've moved, tried to move away from, from that towards people who inject drugs because intravenous uh, precludes people that do things called skin popping, where you uh, inject just into the sort of sub subcutaneous tissue rather than to a vein if you can't find one. Uh, and I guess on the topic of animal bites, we could maybe think about what James saying, the organisms that you see in the, uh, the animal's mouth. So the common ones you're going to see are cats and dogs, because uh, people around those the most. If you look at um, but if you look at shark bites, which are relatively common, uh, the organisms that you tend to grow from uh, shark bite wounds will be uh, organism uh, bacteria that grow in the sea, uh, in aquatic environments. So uh, gram-negatives like Vibrio, uh, Vibrio vulnificans, or uh, Aeromonas, Plesiomonas, which is in a sort of pseudomonads group. There are, depending on your environmental exposure, more unusual cases. And actually, Vibrio vulnificus is quite interesting because um, it lives in sort of brackish waters. It can cause a skin soft tissue infection um, without a bite, you know, if it's a skin break or so on, particularly in the immune compromised. Um, if you have the right risk factors and give uh, unusual organisms the opportunity, they can cause skin soft tissue infections. Yeah, that's right. What about the symptoms then, Cal? We're handing over to the Roman encyclopedist Celsus here, who in the first century described the four uh, signs or symptoms of, of uh, cellulitis. So that's dolor, pain, rubor, redness, calor, heat, and tumor, swelling. So pain, redness, heat, swelling of uh, the affected area. Your job when you uh, go and see somebody like this is to try and document those symptoms, see if anything else is causing it, and uh, then kind of start empirical treatment for uh, for what you think is going on. Go into a little bit more detail as opposed to just saying he's got a big red leg. How do the uh, skin and soft tissue infections sort of differ in appearance to each other, Cal? It's quite simple. You know, those four things are what you're looking for. Uh, not everybody with pain, redness, heat and swelling will have a skin soft tissue infection. So the classic mimic will be gout, uh, particularly of the, the, the first, uh, the, you know, the big toe, the hallux. You know, there are other conditions that can cause that, but that's the things that you're looking for. If someone's phoned you and said, you know, we're treating someone for cellulitis, um, you're going to examine and check that those are there. So in Patigo, um, an infection of the epidermis, this is very superficial, uh, usually caused by Staph aureus, maybe group A strep. It usually presents in young children who are in close contact with each other. It's very infectious uh, because it's so superficial, you know, it's just skin-to-skin uh, -skin contact. And usually what it is, is like a golden yellow crusting uh, on the skin, somewhere around the mouth or around the eye. That's where it can be itchy and sore. You don't actually usually get um, those four classic signs that we're talking about there. Um, mm. It's sort of an outlier, I guess, of the other infections, and it is so superficial that you're not getting this as invasive an infection going on. Yeah. Well, I mean, I always think of these as to how they differ from your, your bog standards, uh, cellulitis. And, and like you say, that kind of golden crusting is probably the main differentiator. 
moving a little bit more deeply, we've got erysipelas, which is normally caused by streptococci. Yes, and this usually presents, um, when you've seen a lot of these, you can differentiate the colour. It's a slightly, I guess, angrier looking red, for want of a better word. It, it, it's brighter in colour, um, I think, and uh, has much more defined mm, margins. Very Is defined that margins. Right? Because it's so superficial, you can, it's very distinct where it ends. Um, and you also see, tend to see that because the swelling uh, that the infection is causing is so much more superficial, that can lead to blisters forming, um, skin peeling back. Mm. Yeah, it's usually very well demarcated as opposed to cellulitis, which can usually kind of spread out a little bit. And um... Another thing you might see is like small satellite lesions, like bits of it that are coming away from, from the edge. Um, and sometimes with the sort of superficial strep infections, you might see almost like a um, vasculitic type rash, which is a, lots of small petechiae uh, on the skin. Uh, so sometimes you can see that in conjunction with, a, with an erysipelas or other infections. Uh, so cellulitis really is a classic that everybody's referring to. And that is the, the four symptoms, the redness, the swelling, uh, the pain, uh, the heat, and uh, it's less distinctly defined. I think it often gets mistaken for other conditions, um, and that's where the signs and symptoms mm -hmm. come difficult. So gout being a classic mimic, but other things, you know, people have got chronic venous um, insufficiency problems. They'll have a long-standing red leg, uh, and people come into hospital and they've got a red leg. Often they get a label of a, a skin soft tissue infection or more commonly cellulitis even though they don't actually have swelling, they don't have pain and they don't have heat. They've just got redness. So the, I think the key thing is you don't necessarily need all four, but the more of those four that you have, the more likely that you're looking at a skin yeah, soft tissue yeah, infection. Um, and I think we'd mentioned a couple of other things. So I think you described what folliculitis and a carbuncle mm. oil was. Um, and lymphangitis, you tend to see in conjunction with uh, one of these other infections and you'll see if you know your anatomy and you know where lymphatics are so for the leg for example it runs up the inner thigh uh, you'll see this um, tracking redness in the line uh, which is quite distinct and then you if you get enough you might feel into the inguinal area in the groin and feel some uh, lymphadenopathy there and textbooks wise they say that that's more common with streptococci with all these conditions the diagnosis is almost always clinical. There's no real diagnostic test as such. There's stuff that you'll do. You'll take their full blood count. You might check their CRP if you're uh, if you want to track it uh, uh, to check for resolution. You might do some blood cultures, although blood culture yield in skin soft tissue infection, unless it's severe, is is quite low. Uh, but usually you're looking at these symptoms and making a clinical judgment. And any investigations you are to rule out other conditions in your differential. So you might do, just talking in, uh, about the differential diagnosis now and, and tests that you would use, you might do uh, an ultrasound to uh, rule out uh, DVT. You uh, might do uh, x-rays or joint aspirations to um, rule out gout. The cellulitis could be associated with an abscess. So if you see a swelling and you think there might be something drainable there, then you might uh, aspirate that and, and send it for culture. Other things, uh, dermatitis, lymphedema, superficial thrombophobitis, uh, which won't really show up on an ultrasound. 
but hopefully you should be able to differentiate that from satellites clinically. And then lastly, what Cam's mentioned before, which is sort of a red leg for other reasons. So if somebody's previous had, they had cellulitis or recently had it, there may still be redness in that area and that may reflect post-cellulitic change. Most of the times that goes away, sometimes it doesn't and it's permanent. Yeah, anything else, Carl? Sunburn or like a local reaction, nettle stings, you know, plants. Yeah, or burns or uh, res- resolving burn as well can, even if it's uninfected, can kind of uh, look uh, cellulitic in nature. But like we say, the diagnosis is normally clinical. By all means, if you can get pus, send it. Uh, and then if they're febrile, then you can do blood call, just look for bacteremia. But really, um, you investigate to exclude the differentials, if that's even uh, required. Most cases of cellulitis are diagnosed clinically and dealt with clinically. And in fact, most of them are dealt with in primary care. So you've established it's cellulitis, you're happy, it's not anything else, you've done all your tests. How are you going to... Uh, you know, decide what to do, how, how severe is the uh, illness. And there's lots of things that we could talk about. We could talk about the uh, SIRS, systemic inflammatory response syndrome criteria. We could talk about QSOFA, which are meant to have replaced uh, SIRS in the most recent surviving sepsis guidance. We could talk about the ERON classification, uh, which I have never uh, seen anyone use. Uh, so that's one way of looking at the severity of the infection. The other way of looking at it is is more of the clinical angle of uh, severity, which I think, James, we talk about. Yeah. So here's how I, I think about skin soft tissue infections. Are they uncomplicated? Is there nothing else going on in the skin? And it's a straightforward cellulitis. Are they complicated? So they are there some sort of defect, like there's an abscess present or uh, the infected skin is 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 burned. Uh, or there's an ulcer, it's a diabetic foot infection, there's a deep wound, like an injecting drug users, uh, you know, they've introduced the bacteria deep in and it's involving kind of deep fascial uh, planes. Or? Or the fur being a necrotizing skin soft tissue infection, or what commonly gets referred to as a necrotizing yeah. fasciitis. Um, so those are the three kind of ways that I uh, think about it. So uh, uncomplicated, complicated, or neck fash. We'll talk about neck fash at the end, I think it deserves a separate mention. So a few kind of clinical yep. bits that are important about it. How do you treat it, Cal? In terms of if we start with the antimicrobials, we've already talked about is generally going to be Staphylococcus aureus and BT hemolytic strep. And we've talked briefly about those in both of podcasts. If you're looking for Staphylococcus cover, there's, there's nothing better really than an anti-Staphylococcal mm. penicillin. The one that we use is flucoxacillin and there's various others that we've talked about before. And this will also cover the BT hemolytic streptococci. Now, you can look at things like the minimum inhibitory concentration for strep and say that, you know, flucoxacillin doesn't bind as well. And so potentially there's benefit um, to giving something like a benzyl penicillin as well. Yeah, so, you know, if you look at something like group A strep, it's more sensitive to penicillin than it is Mm. to flucoxacillin. But you compare those MICs to staph and it's a lot less. It's, I think it's difficult to compare MICs yeah. between organisms because if you look at what's called the ecological cutoff point, you know, it's, it's not comparable really. But I guess, it, it, you know, and that's something that sometimes you see in routine practices that people think, well, we want to cover staph aureus, we'll get flugoxacillin. We want to cover beta-humulic strep, 
So we'll give benzylpenicillin. But there's, not, there's no evidence to support that practice. And what you're actually doing is giving a lot mm. more beta-lactams. And there's a cumulative toxicity to your bone marrow, lower your seizure threshold, risk of acute kidney injury. Yeah, particularly with Benpen, actually. And also just infusions. Yeah, so you, you know, you're giving flucoxacillin four times a day, six hourly. And you're also giving benzalpenicillin on top of that six hourly. That's 12 infusions a day. Like the patients <laughs> suck the bedside. Uh, you know, that's going to have detrimental effect on their muscle mass. You know, there's, there's, there's hidden harms there. So. But there is actually um, some evidence that this is one of the few cases in infectious disease where there is, we, we do have evidence of fluplox monotherapy being equivalent to combination therapies. There was a paper that was uh, put out, people presented to the emergency department and they were randomized. It was an RCT to Benpen fluclox uh, or fluclox monotherapy. And the outcomes were the same between the two. And there were slightly more side effects, if I remember rightly, in the combination therapy uh, group. Now, it wasn't covering severe skin and soft tissue infections, but that combined with the with, with group A strep being sensitive to uh, fluclocicillin makes most people reassured that you can use fluclox monotherapy safe in the knowledge that you're, you're covering uh, both staph and strep. Definitely group A, uh, probably group C, uh, sorry, definitely group A, definitely group C and G, and they're the ones that are causing most of the uh, infections. Group B streptococcus does have slightly higher MIC breakpoints to fluclox than the other groups, whether or not that's important, whether or not they cause a lot of skin and soft tissue infection, I don't really know. Yeah, you do see it, but it's, it's definitely a less common cause. And um, if it was severe enough, you know, you'll, you might get it in blood. Mm, and that's true, actually, yeah. And then you would definitely um, want to use penicillin, wouldn't you? You know. Um, so yeah, that's a mainstay of treatment. And I guess other options for non-severe, you know, if you're looking at oral, so you could use oral fluclocticillin. Um, you could also use something like a tetracycline. So doxycycline is quite commonly used with the caveat that there's a, there can be quite a lot of resistance mm. in streptococci. Um, but that's the importance of follow-up and making sure that if it's getting worse and, you know, worsening advice, then come back and try something else. And then things like macrolides, clarifromycin, um, you know, it's got relatively good activity against these organisms. And then there's, you know, lots of other things that you, you could use uh, that we won't go into details with, but it's a wide range of things. And we talked about that in the sort of Staph aureus and the Streptococci. Yeah. So if you um, have severe skin soft tissue infection or you suspect an MRC or the patient is penicillin allergic, you can use IV um, uh, vancomycin too. Uh, but really most, most severe infections can be treated with, you know, fluclox and vancomycin. Uh, IV with fluclox being your number one choice. Uh, when would you want to consider gram-negative cover? Rarely yeah. would be yeah. the... Um, it's really when you're looking at a patient who, um, say, has diabetic foot infection or ulcers and they're unwell. Mm. So if you've just got diabetic foot infection or ulcers or something like that and they're not unwell and they've got signs of local infection, you're just going to treat Staph aureus because that's probably yeah. what it's going to be mm. and streptococci. Uh, if it's not getting better or they've presented and they're severely unwell, then you're probably going to give them some gram-negative cover as well and take some swabs of that area and see what the actual organisms are or get some tissue. So, yes, yeah, the more severe bracket and with risk factors. If it was a severe cellulitis and it wasn't sort of necrotizing infection, I'd probably still stick with just mm. fluclocicillin 
um, you'd be tempted to add in something like clindamycin, linezolid, uh, and the rationale for that is that you have, and we've talked about this before, toxin production for things like group A strep, and the idea is that these antibiotics that interfere with your protein synthesis can turn off that yeah. toxin production. In theory, gentamicin would do the same thing. Um, I think the like volume, of, you know, the the pharmacokinetics, my understanding of gentamicin would would not be yep. as optimal as something like linezolid or clindamycin, which are very well distributed into tissues and that's trying right. to get to the site. Um, so that's maybe the other benefit that they have, whereas flucoxacillin is quite highly protein bound, mm. sticks in the blood. Clindamycin and linezolid have a high volume of distribution, lower protein binding, they'll get to the site of the infection yeah. a bit better. So maybe that's mm. why they help. I don't know. Um, so yeah, gram-negative cover, if they're severely unwell and they've got risk factors like diabetic or they're immune compromised, I can think of a handful of cases where um, it's not being an agonizing infection and, you know, there was someone who had a um, yeah. like ulcer. And they like, had re re yeah, really for gram-negative cover, there needs to be a reason like a pre-existing ulcer or something like that. And to be honest, if you've got a patient and they've got a severe skin soft tissue infection, they should be discussed with an infection specialist. They should be discussed with a microbiologist or infectious diseases um, specialist because it, it comes, you know, I think we're making, we're making it sound complicated the way we're explaining it, but I think that's because it is complicated. There are lots of different overlapping risk factors for different aspects of this. So that, that sort of weighing up which antibiotics specifically to use uh, and you know, not nobody's going to get it right 100% of the time, but there's definitely balances of risk, isn't there? Let's talk about neck fash. Not so fast there, recording podcast, James. This is editing podcast, James, and we are already at 37 minutes, so we have decided to split this into two sections. We'll talk about necrotizing fasciitis next week. See you all then.